Junior Doctors Corner, the podcast that helps medical students and junior doctors like yourself not only survive but thrive in your careers. We cover topics including doctor well-being, career, and life outside of medicine. My name is Dana and I am your host for this podcast. Are you ready for a healthy dose of support, motivation, and inspiration? Then let's start this episode stat. Welcome back to another episode of Junior Doctors Corner. I have an exciting announcement to make. We are now live as a Facebook group. So it's called Junior Doctors Corner Community. Please join us if you'd like access to exclusive content and also live Q&A with some of our featured guest speakers. For now, this group is open to only Australian junior doctors, so you'll have to answer three questions when you request to join the group. Before we jump into today's episode, I'd like to say a special thank you to all the listeners who have submitted their feedback uh, through a survey that I posted last week. It was really helpful to see what you guys would like to hear more about so I have some exciting topics lined up for you and without further ado let's get into this interview with Dr. Yumiko Kadota. Hi Miko thank you so much for joining us on Junior Doctors Corner. Thanks for having me. So for those who haven't had the chance to get to know you, although I think it's quite impossible because your story went viral all over the world, can you please tell us a bit about yourself? Sure. Um, so um, my full name is Yumiko Kadota. Um, I was working as a plastic surgery registrar last year. I was PGY8. Um, I did my uni at UNSW in Sydney and did my junior doctor years in Melbourne before coming back here. And um, I eventually left uh, medicine altogether last year when I suffered from burnout for several months. And despite great efforts by not just myself, but my GP and other uh, senior doctors at the hospital, we weren't able to change quite a punishing roster that I was working. So eventually I fell quite ill Mm. and became a patient myself later in the year when things got worse for me. And so I decided to write a blog post about it and that's how people found out about the story. Okay, so you left your dream career of becoming a plastics and reconstructive surgeon after a horrific four months at Bankstown Hospital. And for listeners who haven't already heard of your story, I will uh, leave a link to your blog post in the show notes. And um, I I will, you know, I definitely recommend reading it. Um, It was eye-opening. But, you know, what I'd like to know is, how did it make you feel at the time when your se- your seniors ignored your concerns about the inhumane hours you were rostered to work and you were actually working at the time? I felt initially I was frustrated and I knew that things like a change of roster can take time because it's not just simply changing shifts around, especially if you're working in a small unit and there's only two of you available. So I was trying to be patient, but weeks and weeks went by where things weren't improving. And when I realised that things weren't going to change despite more powerful people like the head of surgery getting involved, I kind of felt 
felt like it was a hopeless situation because mm. if the head of surgery can't even change my roster, then who else can? Mm. And I just felt like if I'm in a situation where I can't make any changes and, and I, I wasn't taking a passive process, um, passive role in the process either because I did come up with three other alternatives for the roster, which um, I was told were reasonable and would be considered. So I was hanging on, hoping that maybe one of the solutions might be um, taken on so that I can work a more reasonable workload. But it was weeks and weeks of the same. And when I realized that it wasn't going to change anytime soon and that my body just couldn't keep up with all the work anymore, mm. that's when I decided to to stop. So I guess that was a long way of saying it. It felt like a very hopeless situation. Mm. Okay. And um, why do you think it was that despite you actually presenting a solution to them that they decided not to go with any of your solutions? I think there are different factors at play. I think that um, the role of the senior registrar included helping out at one of the other hospitals in the city and doing some assisting in the private hospital. So I guess he was quite valuable in those other roles as well. So they were reluctant to remove him from those roles to help at Bankstown. And if um, the current arrangement is convenient for the surgeons, I guess they didn't really have a great interest in, in changing it. Mm. So that's that's what I suspect was holding things back. No one really wanted it changed. Mm. And what were your thoughts, like what kind of thoughts and emotions came up for you when your head of department said to you when you, you resigned, you're, you know, I think um, this is quoted from your blog, mm-hmm. um, you're good at what you do, but if you can't handle the hours, maybe this isn't for you. Mm. I felt um, I felt that was an unfair comment to make because I did obviously wasn't um, aware of the exact number of hours I was doing. I thought it was a slightly I- ignorant thing to say even. Um, the consultants don't do a whole week at a time so they um they actually do one day at a time so they might see how busy I am on one day Mm. but then they change over the next day so there's no one who's continuously with you for the whole time that you're on call right so I don't any of the consultants had any idea of the um the workload that I was doing Mm -hmm. and um, the number of contact hours don't really reflect what it's like to be on call because obviously they don't track your phone and and see when you're getting called in the middle of the night and Mm. all the tasks that come up during the day and and after hours that they're not aware of so I think um I think it was probably a blanket statement Mm -hmm. rather than an actual reflection of um what, what hours I was actually doing I don't think anyone was really quite aware of how bad it was for me Mm. And I'm sorry to hear that it took a huge media storm for them to mm-hmm. really realise it. It's been 10 months since you resigned. How have you been and what have you been up to? I've been up and down. Um, initially, I thought that I would just have a bit of a break and then I'd be back to my usual energy and back mm-hmm. to my usual activities again. Mm-hmm. Um, I was kind of in denial of the fact that I was burnt out and 
quite mentally unwell. So I kept pushing on with other activities. I went back to running again and I even managed to do the city to surf. Looking mm. back now, I don't know how I managed to do that. And um, I just felt guilty for not working. So I was actually actively applying for jobs at the time and I did have um, a job lined up for semester two last year, which I ended up having to decline because I just couldn't do it. Um, so my body's taken a lot longer than expected to mm. recover. Mm-hmm. And um, things just got worse. And in, in October, I found myself in a place where I couldn't even get out of bed um, and I wasn't sleeping well. I was still having quite traumatic flashbacks and symptoms from my time at Bankstown. So I ended up in hospital for six weeks. And um, even after that, it took me a long time to feel normal. Um, Even now, I wouldn't say that I'm back to normal yet. So I'm still kind of um, in a recovery process. But I've been doing a lot of writing. Um, I'm writing a book at the moment. And just from um, the interest through Facebook, I've um, been been approached by several conferences this year. So I'll be speaking at about, um, well, nearly 20 events this year. That's amazing. Yeah, I'm really glad that I've got this opportunity to speak to people, connect with other um, doctors and medical students about um, what it's really like. And um, I think there are a few threads that have come out of the blog, you know, what it's like to be a a female in medicine, um, bullying and harassment, Mm. uh, burnout, um, the role of the unaccredited registrar and Mm -hmm. how they're treated. So quite a few topics have emerged from this this blog post. I'm glad that it started conversations with people. I do believe that there are some changes that have taken place at various hospitals around the country, maybe not anything, um, you know, at the institutional level, which I think is what we need, but at least at the ground level there are changes being made to on-call protocols and rostering to make sure that unaccredited registrars are a bit more protected. So I do feel that some some good things have come out of there. So part of what I'm doing now is trying to do some advocacy work and working with um, bodies like the AMA to, to try and improve things for um, my colleagues, even though I'm not part of the system anymore, but I don't want anyone else to go through the same kind of experience that I did because mm. I don't think it's acceptable for any registrar to go through those kind of hours and have their concerns ignored. Mm. And even though you're not part of the system anymore, you're still very much a valuable part of our doctor community. Um, we need people like you um, to come out of the other end and continue to advocate for um, doctors, even though you're not currently actively practising. Yeah, I think it's it's important for people who have gone through a bad experience to not just walk away and and just leave the problems with the people who are left. I think that if you are in a position where you can make a difference, I think it is useful to provide that feedback and to be involved in in processes to make make those changes. Otherwise, nothing will change. Mm. And um, I, I did feel disappointed that previous registrars 
who did my job never spoke up mm-hmm. about the unfair roster. You know, mm-hmm. I was on call 10 days out of 14 while the other registrar just did four. And, mm-hmm. and that had been in place for several years and no one had said anything. And it's completely understandable because when you're an unaccredited registrar, you're still waiting to be selected on the program. So mm-hmm. you're essentially a voiceless part of the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very vulnerable group. So mm-hmm. I don't blame anyone for not saying anything about it, even though yeah. people from the outside look at it and think it's ridiculous that it wasn't yep. shared equally. Yeah. Um, but I do feel that if someone had spoken up earlier, things might not have been that bad. But mm. I guess I had to be that person. and. Yeah. The people who followed from me mm-hmm. um, hopefully benefited from it because there were two people who took over my job. Mm-hmm. And I see that it was still stressful with the two of them, mm-hmm. but it was nowhere near as bad as if they had to do it on their own. So mm-hmm. I believe that they're continuing to have two registrars um, covering my role. Mm. And I think that um, what you just said speaks a lot about the culture in medicine. Um, we were taught right from medical school, it's an unspoken rule. We're meant to keep our head down and just keep doing, you know, what we're told to do, uh, not complain. Otherwise we might risk not getting the job that we want, getting on the training program that we want. So um, I really, really commend you for um, speaking up about this. Yeah, thank you. Um, It it is difficult. You're absolutely right. We are told to just get on with it um no one wants to be known as a whinger you know you don't want to be a chronic whinger who complains about everything but I guess if there's something that you feel very strongly about particularly if it's it's affecting your ability to do your job Mm. I think that's when it's important to speak out and I did feel that my situation was bad enough where it was affecting the quality of care I was given uh, I was giving Mm -hmm. and um you know, both myself and the hospital are lucky that nothing bad happened because when you're so sleep-deprived and exhausted, we're all humans. It's so easy to make mistakes. And thankfully there weren't any mistakes that I'm aware of during my time there, but it easily something bad easily could have happened because of the condition that I was working in. Mm. Looking back now at your time at Bankstown Hospital, how do you feel about, like, you've talked a bit about um, how, you, how you feel about what's happened. Um, mm. What changes do you think we should make to improve, um, whether it's surgical or physician or, you know, the, just the training system um, for all registrars or unaccredited registrars? How can we prevent other trainees from experiencing what you went through? I think that the word institutional leadership have come has come out quite a lot in the last few months and I completely agree with that I think that the reason why unaccredited registrars are treated so poorly is because there are such few training positions and so many unaccredited registrars who are just working so hard and almost desperate to get onto this program to the point where consultants feel that they can treat them however they like and, and really just take them for advantage. So if there are more training positions for, um, for registrars, then I think that would be one solution. Mm-hmm. Um, there also, I think, needs to be a consultant who is responsible for being a supervisor for the unaccredited registrar. Mm-hmm. I think it's the only group in the hospital that 
doesn't really have somebody looking after them. Mm. We have interns and residents who have an HMO manager or a JMO manager who they can um, report to and accredited registrars have um, the college Mm -hmm. but unaccredited registrars don't really have a a go-to person so they're essentially left on their own. Mm -hmm. Of course there's um, the head of the department and supervisor of training that you could speak to but they aren't obliged to look after the unaccredited registrars. There's no dedicated person for it. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one problem. And um, there was even an MJA Insight Plus article questioning the, the role of even having an unaccredited registrar, mm. Mm. Um, which I found to be an interesting article. I think that, um, yeah, by principle, these roles really shouldn't, have to exist if we had enough training positions for everyone Mm. but when you look at hospitals around the country they wouldn't run without unaccredited registrars without the junior registrars there'd be nobody seeing the patients in ed nobody doing the on-call yeah so they're they are an essential part of the team but they should be given a training position if they um if they're suitably qualified for it because there are many unaccredited registrars who have been working for a very long time who are, who are capable and worthy of a training position. So mm. I think there needs to be some structural changes. Um, as you know, we had that student tsunami from several years ago and there just aren't enough training spots to accommodate for the huge number of doctors coming through. So mm. I think it really needs to be um, handled top down. I agree with you that um, we should increase the number of training positions. And if we're really looking at the statistics of what our population as a country is doing, we're heading towards an aging population and there really is a need for more doctors and that's why there are more medical schools and they're graduating more medical students but then we reach this point where there's a huge there's a well I shouldn't say huge actually there's a small bottleneck that we have Mm. to all try to fit through to Mm. to train and come out the other end and provide services as a specialist and I think that bottleneck needs to be widened a lot more yeah definitely so you've started a movement, um, hashtag rested dogs. Um, can you please tell us a bit about that and um, how that came about and what do you do to uh, look after yourself? I think that um, sleep deprivation is quite a serious problem among doctors. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's because of the number of hours we work or because of the on-call. Sometimes it's because a lot of us, Um, bring work home with us and we just think about work and sometimes that can stop us from sleeping Um, and also um, different types of shifts working night shifts and switching to day shifts and that really can affect the sleep rhythm and there's been so much research to show that disrupted sleep is very dangerous for your functioning Um, it's equivalent to being drunk at work so it's so important for doctors to be rested because if you don't have enough sleep you can't function at your best and we are putting patients at risk mm-hmm. and um i i just wanted to have a hashtag that hadn't been used yet so yeah. there could have been a other kind of suitable tags but i uh, tried to think of one that i couldn't find anywhere else 
if, if I put it into Google. So I came up with that one. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think that to be well-rested and to be healthy is important. So mm-hmm. as part of it, um, I've decided to encourage doctors to consider um, picking up running because that's one of my, my interests. Mm-hmm. And so the first... Um, rested docs events will be the Blackmores running festival in Sydney just to encourage people to to train for an event mm-hmm. um not just to have a goal and to get fitter but you know exercise um counterintuitively actually helps with fatigue and with rest as well just doing a little bit of light exercise on a regular basis is actually very helpful for sleep so um it's something that I want to encourage people to do because that is something that I've been doing for a long time. I've been a runner since primary school Mm -hmm. and it definitely helped me throughout my junior doctor years. Mm -hmm. Even when I was doing a busy upper GI surgery term, I still went running several times a week and I kept running um, really throughout um, my whole doctor life even until the year I didn't get to do any running during my Bankstown term but even the term before that I ran a half marathon during that term so um, even while I was registrar I was still keeping up my running Mm because it's a way for me to de-stress and um, just a way to keep healthy and and like I said I think it is really helpful for sleep as well. I, I really love the hashtag like I think it's it's really good it it's sort of encapsulates that importance of being a well-rested healthy doctor to then be able to provide care for others Mm. this is a question that I ask all my guests uh, Mm -hmm. but I'm going to modify it a bit for you Um, name one or two things that's kept you sane through the craziness of the past 10 months so being resigning your blog posts going viral getting a lot of responses and requests from social media I can only imagine how overwhelming that must have been for you yeah initially it was overwhelming especially in the first two days of um the post going live um I I had hundreds of messages and I just couldn't keep up with all of them I just couldn't physically reply to every single one um even though I tried my best to, to respond to everyone um but I guess I've always used yoga as a way of giving time to myself and to relax. I've been doing yoga since I was an intern. So so it's something I've been doing for eight years. And since, um, uh, since resigning, I've also been doing a lot of yoga teaching. I've done two yoga teacher trainings um, and that's really helped me because not only has it taught me to be a teacher, it helps you with your own personal practice as well and and part of training to be a teacher is learning about the philosophy of yoga so that's really shaped some of my life philosophies and helped me with um you know finding that that inner peace and and being able to relax and um and not get too overwhelmed when things do get hectic Mm -hmm. and it's a, it's a cliche, but definitely the people closest to you are the, I think, the people who help you through these kind of intense moments. I'm lucky to have good friends and family who, who were there for me when I was going through that that media storm <laughs> earlier in the year. It's mm-hmm. definitely um, calmed down now, so I'm able to manage it on my own. But definitely, um, 
at, at the beginning it, it was quite intense and um, just having the few kind of key people in my life to talk to about it was really, really quite useful. So what's next for, I know that you have a few things coming up, speaking roles coming up, but what's next for yourself, Miko, and for your blog? Um, I think my blog's had a, a little bit of a, a rest at the moment just to keep up with some of the um, the media and speaking engagements. But I do do hope to keep keep up my blog. But at the moment I'm, I'm writing a book, so mm-hmm. a lot of my writing is going towards that. It's mm-hmm. definitely a different style to writing a blog or writing, um, you know, medical journal articles and, and textbook chapters. So it's a definitely a different style which I'm enjoying. Mm-hmm. So um, a lot of my focus this year will be writing my book mm-hmm. and, I'm looking forward to traveling to different cities around Australia to speak to the different doctors and medical students and and connect with them as well. And I really hope that through all of this we do start to see some changes. I know systemic changes take a very long time, but even if it's a small change, I'd love to see some changes that will improve the working conditions for junior doctors. Well, thank you for being such a big advocate, Miko. And thank you so much for taking the time to do this interview on Junior Doctors Corner. My pleasure. If you really liked that episode, please don't forget to leave a review on iTunes to help a sister out. And don't forget to subscribe to our email list so that you never miss an episode.